That song could not be more appropriate with the text that we are about to dive into when we talk about how Joseph forgives his brothers. Um, But first, Luke touched on one week from tonight at 6 p.m., we are going to have a vision banquet downstairs. We'll be talking about uh, the purposes and plans of Hope Works and what God has put on our heart, where this church is going. It's going to be a great feast. We're going to inaugurate the, the, the event room that, that so many people have been working so hard on downstairs, and it is going to be an inspiring night. And you'll understand more the heart of Hope Works, how you can be involved uh, in, in this church family as Christ's hands and feet. Uh, to one another and a lost and dying world. And a big part of Vision Night, one week from tonight, is our children's ministry. And so with that, uh, Austin and Courtney are our new children's ministers, and we're going to be talking more about that next Sunday night, but I would like for Austin to share a word about that. Thank you, Shane. Good morning. A little couple butterflies here. I'm usually talking to people about yay high. So uh, um, I just wanted to share a little bit about... um, what we do upstairs. Um, I'm Austin Farley. My wife and I are blessed to, uh, wife Courtney and I are blessed to help with the children's ministry team. And, um, you know, up there, it's just kind of like acts for kids. We sing together, we pray together, we uh, worship together. We have a little kids creed that we say that we're going to be saying um, on the stage in a couple weeks, um, sing worship songs, and, and we take an offering. Uh, you know, we, one of the things that we do is um, we uh, sponsor one of the kids at the Gentle Shepherd Orphanage uh, that Brandon and Darnell do in uh, in Kenya. And so Simeon Wonkwe is uh, how they say his name. Um, we take up a little offering and a little solo cup for the kids. And so if they're talking about coins for Simeon, uh, that's what they're talking about. But um, anyways, we just want to be real transparent with uh, our need. You know, we uh, need some help in the children's ministry. And so if anybody's feeling led uh, to, you know, help up there we would we would uh, welcome it and uh, it's a blessing for us every morning we're just humbled and honored to get to spend time with your kids and and uh, i think it'd definitely be a blessing for you as well so we'd love to see you up there next week uh, right after the morning sermon um, we're going to have a children's ministry meeting so if you're interested come on up we'd love to uh, get you registered thank you all we're so blessed to have courtney and austin and and austin just pouring their heart into, into our kids and the kids of the community. So, uh, so let's pray. Father, we pray in Jesus' name that you would allow the text from this morning to be implanted upon our heart and produce a harvest of graciousness and Christ-likeness and forgiveness such as the world has never seen before. For your glory, in Jesus' name, amen. Awesome. Let's give it up for Austin and Courtney. And like I said, we'll be hearing more from them at our banquet next Sunday night at 6 p.m. If this is your first time at HopeWorks, we want you to come to this banquet. It's a great way to know people, great way just to be inspired about the Great Commission in which we are all commanded to participate, and the body of Christ in Acts 2, 42 through 47, in which we are all called and equipped to be an, an essential and vibrant part of that community that changed the world. So, we are in Acts chapter 42. I'm sorry, Genesis chapter 42. It's a really exciting chapter. It is so evident that God wrote it. Because if this chapter were invented by the minds that write our Hollywood films, it would look very different. We would see Joseph in a pit, shaking his fist at his brothers, and say, you better not sleep because I'm coming for you. One by one, I'm going to get you. 
And we would see the story of Joseph unpack with Joseph indeed hunting down each brother and picking them off one by one. But that's not what this text looks like at all. This is an incredibly Christ-like text in which we are challenged to forgive our offender. C.S. Lewis said, we agree forgiveness is a beautiful idea, don't we? Until we have to practice it ourselves. We would love for God to call us to climb some high mountain and do some impossible feat, but perhaps the highest mountain and most impossible feat that any of us can climb is the mountain of forgiveness. And so let me say on the offset, we cannot do what we are called to do, forgive our offenders. But Christ in us can. Christ in us longs to. Christ in us will. And when we allow Christ to forgive our offenders, then Christ will shine through us. I love the statement by Martin Luther King Jr. We must develop and maintain the capacity to forgive. He who is devoid of the power to forgive is devoid of the power to love. There is some good in the worst of us, and some evil in the best of us. When we discover this, we are less prone to hate our enemies. What a statement. And may we be a light shining in a corrupt world. May we be love shining in a cynical and hateful culture. As Martin Luther King Jr. goes on to say, darkness cannot drive out darkness. Only light can do that. And hate cannot drive out hate. Only love can do that. And I believe that as we're going to see, the secret to Joseph's forgiveness is that his eyes were not on his offenders. His eyes were on his Redeemer. If Joseph ever took his eyes off of his Redeemer and focused instead on his offender, then his heart would have been overwhelmed with bitterness and vengeance. Joseph had risen to the position of the most powerful man in the entire world, second only to Pharaoh. And we see that Joseph had so risen in the ranks of Egypt that he was not simply a servant to Pharaoh, he was like a father to Pharaoh. And here he is, after this 20-year process of being lied about, being hated, being betrayed, being forgotten, being abandoned, after this 20-year process into the pit, into slander, into false accusations, into prison, into uh, being forgotten, after this 20-year process, he realized it wasn't a pit, it was a catapult. For God to do everything that God dreamt of doing in Joseph's life and through Joseph's life. And all the while through, Joseph kept his eyes on God. Joseph's brothers hated him. Have you ever been hated? Not simply disliked, but hated. Joseph's brothers hated him, but God 
favored him. Joseph's brothers abandoned him, but we see over and over, God was with him. Joseph's brothers cast him into a pit, but God raised him up. Joseph's brothers sold him as a slave, but God saved him. Potiphar's wife slandered him, but God honored him. Joseph was forgotten in prison, and God didn't remember Joseph because God never forgot Joseph. He never left him. And after a 17-year process from the pit to the prison and to the palace, Joseph's heart was free of bitterness because his eyes were not on his offender, his eyes was on God, his Redeemer. And we've all been hurt. We've all been wounded. We've all been betrayed. We've all been slandered. We've all been lied about. But Joseph did not carry an offense in his spirit. Joseph carried a testimony in his heart. He didn't carry an offense of what his brothers did to him. He carried a testimony of what his God did for him. And we're going to see five characteristics of this heart. These aren't action steps so much as they are characteristics of the heart that maintains its focus on their Redeemer rather than their offender. And we're going to see it's a pure heart, it's a powerful heart, it's a heart that God will shine through, it's a heart that will cause many people to be saved and to come to Christ. May we share this heart. So let's look at Genesis chapter 42, 17 years has passed, Joseph's learned the Egyptian language, he's fluent in it, as we've talked about, he's gone from the pit to the prison, from slander to being forgotten, to the very palace, not simply a servant of Pharaoh, but now he is even a father to Pharaoh at 30 years of age. This young man has incredible wisdom, incredible discernment, incredible gifts of administration, incredible giftings of leadership, but most of all... He has a heart for God. And no matter his circumstances, he continued to testify of God. And we see over and over, God was with Joseph. As David's life can be summed up by the statement, a man after my own heart, as Paul's life can be summed up by the statement, a man who will suffer great things so that my grace can rest upon weakness. Joseph's life can be summed up by the statement, God was with him. And so let's pick up our text now in Genesis chapter 42. This morning I was, I was reading the chapters that we're going to be in, Genesis 42, 43, 44, 45, and I wept because this is such a beautiful story. It was like I heard it for the very first time. And I encourage you to go back and I, 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 was, I almost just read these chapters verbatim. Because the text is so beautiful, it so speaks for itself. Go home and just read it. Marinate in it, visualize it in your mind. It's an incredible chapter of a heart of forgiveness and reconciliation and restoration that flows as a result of that. So let's look at Genesis chapter 42. If you recall, Pharaoh had a dream. Seven plump cows are eaten up by seven skinny cows. Seven ears of 
corn, plump ears of corn are eaten up by seven skinny, scorched ears of corn. And they found out about this Hebrew in prison that can interpret dreams, and Pharaoh brought him into his courts. Joseph cleaned himself up, and Pharaoh says, I hear you can interpret dreams. And Pharaoh said, sir, you've heard wrong, because I can't do anything, but God can. And he will give you the interpretation. No matter his trials, his sufferings, his tribulation, Joseph maintained a heart for God. And he continued to praise God. As Job said, if God slays me, to God be the the, the glory. As Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego said, though we are thrown into a pit, God will deliver us. But even if not, we will still praise him. One of the secrets to Joseph's character, his stamina, his endurance, is that he wasn't concerned about his comfort. He was concerned about the praise of God. So as the dream came about and as the the interpretation of the dream fulfilled itself, there were seven years of abundance, the seven plump cows, seven plump ears of corn. And Pharaoh and his court said, who in all of the world is going to be more discerning than to oversee this process than this Hebrew named Joseph? So he was exalted from the prison to the palace. Joseph was in uh, Pharaoh's chariot, and everybody in Egypt had to bow down on their face as Joseph rode by and say, hail Joseph, honor Joseph. So, seven years of prosperity did indeed take place, and Joseph administrated over this surplus, and he took extra percentages from everybody, and they stored up grains, and now we are into two years of the famine, and all the world is coming to Egypt, and Joseph is now selling the grain, sparing the entire world from starvation. Now let's go to a poor village with a Hebrew family. Chapter 42, verse 1, when Jacob... Jacob, the father of the twelve. Jacob, the father of Joseph. Jacob, who thought that Joseph was dead because Joseph's brothers told this lie about Joseph. Now Jacob, whose name is also Israel. Now Jacob learned that there was grain for sale in Egypt. You see what's happening? We're two years into this famine. Jacob and his brothers and their families and their kids, they're starving to death, just like the entire world. And if they don't go to Egypt and if they don't buy food, if they don't buy food from Joseph, they starve to death. And listen to Jacob. He's old. He's a long in years. And he's got this hurt, wounded heart and this cantankerous spirit about him. This text here would almost be comical if it wasn't flowing from a heart that was grieving so badly over Joseph, who he thought was dead, due to the lie of his brothers. Jacob goes to his 11 sons. He says, why do you look at one another? I've heard that there is grain in Egypt. Go down and buy grain for us, that we may not die. So 10 of Joseph's brothers went down to buy grain in Egypt. Why not 11? Because Jacob held his youngest son back. He already lost one son. He wasn't going to lose his youngest son. But Jacob did not send Benjamin. Benjamin, when Jacob died, when Jacob thought that Joseph died, Jacob poured all of his heart, all of his affection into his youngest son, Benjamin. Benjamin, the full brother of Joseph. Benjamin and Joseph shared the same mother. Jacob did not share Benjamin. Joseph's brother. 
he did not send them with his brothers, for he feared that harm might happen to him. Thus, the sons of Israel came to buy among the others who came, for the famine was in the land in Canaan. Now, let's go to verse 6, and our plot thickens. Now, Joseph was governor over the land. He was the one who sold to all the people of the land. And Joseph's brothers came and bowed themselves before him with their faces to the ground. You remember the dream when we started this series in Genesis chapter 37 that started this whole process, the, the instigating factor of this, of this whole chain reaction of events? Joseph had a dream that his brothers would be bowed before him. He had another dream that his brothers and his parents would be bowed before him. And then here the brothers are. Joseph recognizes the brothers. The brothers do not recognize Joseph. They didn't see Joseph uh, for, for 17 years. They, haven't not, they have not seen Joseph. And now he is. Here he is speaking the Egyptian language, dressed like an Egyptian ruler. Joseph saw his brothers and recognized them. Watch this. Watch this. Watch this. Our plot thickens. But he treated them like strangers and spoke roughly to them. Why did he do that? He doesn't speak to them in the Hebrew language. They have no idea this is their brother. They have no idea he speaks Hebrew. He's speaking them in Egyptian through a translator, and Joseph recognizes them, and he says to them, you are spies. You've come to see the nakedness of the land. You've come to, to, to spy out our land. You plan to attack us. You plan to steal from us. And they said, what? No, no way we're spies. Three more times he accuses them. He pulls them together. Guards begin circling around Joseph. They don't know what's going on. They're ready to kill these, these Hebrew boys, these Hebrew men now. And he says, no, you're spies. And they say, we're poor Hebrews. We have a dad. He's along in years. We've got a younger brother. We've come here to buy food for our families. He said it again. You're spies, just as I told you. And they said, this is... This is not right, and they're speaking respectfully to him because they're absolutely terrified. They know who this ruler is. They know that he could have them all killed immediately. And he says again in verse 16, surely you were spies. And he puts them all in custody. And they're talking amongst themselves. Again, they don't know that he can speak Hebrew. Verse 21 they said to one another, and this is our first key, our first takeaway, and having a heart of forgiveness. Joseph is able to look into their heart, and he's able to look into the quality of their life for the last 17 years, and he sees that their hearts and their minds have been riddled with guilt, distress, and fear. And so it is with our offenders. Whatever we may imagine of them, as we may try to fall asleep, if their hearts are not right with God, and if their hearts have not changed, if their hearts have not melted before God's love and forgiveness, so it is with the worst of our offenders. Their lives, internally, have been characterized by guilt, distress, and fear. And that stirred Joseph's compassion. They're speaking to themselves, and they say, we are guilty in truth, and 
They're haunted by what happened 17 years ago, this lie that they've all been trying to conceal. Joseph has gone on with his life, and mind you, the only reason that Joseph has been able to move on with his life is because his eyes have been focused on his Redeemer, not his offender. Sometimes people say, I cannot forgive, I cannot let this go, because you don't know what they did to me. And to that I say... The more severe the attack, the more severe the offense, the more critical it is that you let them off the hook, that you forgive them. Forgiveness is, in essence, not altruistic. It is somewhat selfish. It is for ourselves. It is not entirely others-oriented. It is also for our well-being the health of our hearts, for our prayers, our faith, and everything that Jesus wants to do in our heart. And they say, I can't let them off the hook. And then I say, then every time you think of that offense, it's as if you allow them to do it to you again and to control your life through that offense. They're moving on with their lives, but you remain attached, you remain in bondage to that offense. And the only way the cords are going to be cut so that you can be free to fulfill God's calling upon your life is if you let them go in your heart, forgive them. And in reality, they're not moving on with their lives because they're subject to a higher authority and they're living with guilt before God. And they're living a life that's trying to hide the past, that's filled with not only, re, not, not only guilt, but that's filled with distress. If we live with guilt, and even if our offenders live with guilt, then it creates distress and, and anxiety in their minds. And that, the text goes on to say, we saw the distress of his soul when we begged us and we did not listen. Oh, do you hear this? When we read in Genesis chapter 37 that the brothers threw Joseph into a pit... We didn't see this detail. We didn't see that there was distress in his soul. We didn't see what what they're remembering. We didn't see the pain in his face. We didn't see the confusion in his countenance. We didn't see the distress in his soul. We didn't see him, as the text says, begging them to pull him out, begging them to spare his life, begging them not to sell him as a slave. We didn't see this, but this image, this thought has haunted them. For the last 17 years, as they've been carrying this guilt, remembering this distress, and they go on to talk among themselves, this is why this distress has come upon us. And Reuben answered them, did I not tell you? I told you not to sin against the boy from attacking Joseph, now they're all attacking one another. There is just no peace within them, and therefore there's not going to be peace in their relationships. Did I not tell you not to sin against the boy? You did not listen? Now that there comes a reckoning for his blood? They've been living with the fear of this reckoning that they knew they were on course with for the last 17 years. And Joseph gets a glimpse into the state of his offender's heart and mind. They've been living with guilt, distress, and fear for the last 17 years. So it is with our offenders. They've been living with guilt, distress, 
and fear. Because the Holy Spirit of Jesus Christ is their ultimate authority. Not us, not their employers, not their family members, not their circle of friends. Jesus Christ is their ultimate authority. Verse 23. They did not know that that Joseph understood them, for there was an interpreter between them. Watch this, verse 24. Then he turned away from them and wept. They didn't see it. He hid it. He returned to them and spoke to them. Did you see this? He wept. He found, a, he found a place where he could get away by himself and nobody could see him. And he just cried his eyes out. Do you see what happens here? This, is, this wound that was clearly inflicted upon Joseph was something that Joseph had been oppressing. How do we know that Joseph had been oppressing this? Well, Joseph was given the name we see when the Pharaoh exalted Joseph. He was given an Egyptian name, Zaphna Penea. Zaphna Penea. What is this Egyptian name? Well, it fit his calling, and it's exactly what he was doing. The name that the Pharaoh had given Joseph meant Savior of the world. And this is how Joseph had been functioning for the past seven years during the surplus and now two years into the recession and the famine for the past two years. He has been functioning as the savior of the world. And it looks like life is finally going good for Joseph. And he has his firstborn son. And do you want to know what Joseph names his firstborn son? Manasseh. And do you want to know what Manasseh means? Manasseh means God has made me forget entirely my troubles and my father's house. He's not dealing with this. He's not carrying this this anger, this hate. His eyes are clearly on his Redeemer, not his forgiver. But we clearly see from the text, as Joseph enters into what we described last week as the next chapter of his life, he did everything he could to forget about that previous chapter and to nail it shut. And he had a son and named his son Manasseh. God has made me forget entirely my troubles and my father's house. And Joseph had a second son that he named Ephraim, which means fruitful, which helped Joseph forget. And now, through the sovereignty of God, their paths cross. And Joseph finds a place where he can just weep. And God is bringing him to a place where he's going to have to deal with this. And Joseph behaves very interestingly. At first glance, you think that Joseph just behaves in a manner that is being vindictive. Nothing could be further from the truth. Joseph is not being vindictive whatsoever. Scriptures clearly teach us what Joseph's motive is. Joseph is testing them. What's he testing? Joseph is testing to see if they've changed. Why is he testing them to see if they've changed? He's testing them to see if they've changed because Joseph wants a relationship with them. Joseph wants to bless them. Joseph wants to take care of their families. This is the heart of forgiveness. You see, forgiveness and reconciliation are two different words. 
Forgiveness is a one-way street. It's between us and God. Whether our offender is sorry or not, we still have a command, a calling, a, a, a pattern to follow in the example of Christ to forgive. Even if they're not sorry, it doesn't matter. Forgiveness is a one-way street. As C.S. Lewis said, forgiveness is a one-way street that sets a prisoner free to realize that prisoner was yourself. Forgiveness is a one-way street. Even if they would turn around and do it right again, absolutely. Forgiveness is a one-way street. Forgiveness protects our relationship with God. It keeps our heart tender. Forgiveness keeps our heart pure. Forgiveness protects God's calling upon our life. Forgiveness protects our ability to trust. Forgiveness protects our ability to have intimacy and relationships in the present and in the future. Forgiveness is absolutely critical. Forgiveness is entrusting justice to God, blessing them in Jesus' name, and moving on with your life and dreaming about new things and bigger and better things, whether or not they're sorry. But Joseph wanted to go beyond forgiveness. Joseph had a heart for reconciliation. And reconciliation is a two-way street. Reconciliation does require a change of heart. Reconciliation does require repentance on the part of your offender. And Joseph wanted to go beyond forgiveness. Joseph had a mission to enter into the realm of reconciliation with his brothers. Therefore, he enters into a process where he tests them. To see if they're ready for a relationship with him. To see if he's ready for a relationship with him. And that's his heart. Because that's the heart of God. That's the heart of his father. That was his heart. And it was God's ultimate plan for them to be reconciled. Because this is more than a family squabble that we're reading about. This is the preservation of God's people. It is God's plan for this family to become a nation. And this nation to produce the Messiah of the world. This is all God's plan. So Joseph begins behaving very interestingly. He has them all. Benjamin's at home, so he has the other nine, ten. The other ten brothers. And he tells them, you're spies? And they say, no, we're not. And he says, well, then all of you stay. One of you go back and bring your younger brother. Let me just see if your story bears out. But this whole time he's asking them, by the way... This dad that you're talking about, how's your dad? How's his health? Is he alive? How is he doing? And then he decides, only one of you stay, the rest of you go back, and this one's going to continue to stay until you bring your your, your younger brother that you told about, Benjamin, back. And now their heart is broken. They're terrified. Bring Benjamin back? Our dad will never go for that. He lost Joseph. And now the remainder of his heart and any any consolation of his grief is his heart being poured into Benjamin. We can't bring Benjamin back. We can't risk Benjamin's life. We don't know what's going on. Simeon stays. Now nine brothers go back. Simeon's in prison. They pack enough grain to last their families a little bit, their dad a little bit. When they get back, brokenhearted Jacob says, where's your brother? They explain exactly what happened. Jacob begins lashing out at them, blaming them for that, blaming them for Joseph. His heart is grieved. He said, now I've lost another son. 
They said, Dad, you have to let us take Benjamin back. And he said, I've lost Joseph. There's no way I'm going to lose Benjamin. We don't know what's going to happen to Simeon. I am not going to lose a third son. No. But then the food runs out. And they're starving. Their kids are starving. Judah, the spokesman of the brothers, says, Dad, if you let us take Benjamin, we would have gone and come back. We could have done this twice now. Let us take Benjamin. And Judah makes a pledge to his dad. Judah says, if I lose Benjamin, if a hair on his head is harmed, kill my two kids. Kill me. But for the sake of the whole family, for the sake of Benjamin, who's starving to death, let us take Benjamin back. So they return with Benjamin. Joseph sees them returned. Jacob gave gifts, humble gifts, a peasant's gifts to this ruler who's taken such an interest in his family. So now, all 12 brothers are reunited. They still don't know Joseph as their brother. Joseph arranges for a feast. Joseph is eating with the Egyptians. The 11 brothers are eating together. Because text tells us in this day, uh, the Egyptians considered it deplorable to eat with Hebrews. Something very interesting happens. Joseph has seating arrangements for his brothers, and he has them seating from the oldest to the youngest. And when they sit, they look at each other, and they are a little freaked out. They say, how does he know our ages? How are we sitting like this? And he gives all of them portions, but to Benjamin, his full brother, the youngest brother, he gives five times a portion from his own plate. And all of their hearts begin to get a little bit light. And the next morning, Joseph orders that their saddles and their packs and their wagons are packed as full of grain and food and supplies as it can possibly be, and he sends them on the way. With one exception. He secretly hides a silver cup from his own plate in Benjamin's saddlebag. So the 11 brothers saddle up, they pack up. Early in the morning, the Bible says, they start back home. And I think they're really excited to bring this supply and to tell their dad the whole story. And then an Egyptian garrison of guards catch up with them, stop them, and say, a silver cup has been stolen from, from, from Joseph's table. And Judah steps up and says, I assure you, that was not for us. That was not us. Search our bags if you like. If you find it, kill whoever found it. He was so certain it was not with them. From the oldest to the youngest, they begin searching the bag. And when they came to Benjamin, they found the silver cup. And they began tearing their clothes. They were grieved. They were terrified. They were thinking that Benjamin is going to be executed on the spot, and now their dad would lose Benjamin. And as Judah would say later, our dad's life is intertwined with Benjamin's life. If anything happens to Benjamin, it will certainly send our dad's soul to Sheol. And then they bring the 11 brothers to Joseph's house. He walks out and he says, why have you done this? 
And then listen to Judah, the oldest brother, step up as the spokesman. Verse 18 of chapter 42. On the third day, Joseph said to them, do this and you will live. If you are honest, let one of your brothers remain confined where you are in custody and let's go get the grain offering. Well, I'm sorry, let's fast forward actually to chapter 44, chapter 44, verse 18. Then Judah went up to him and said, Oh, my Lord, please let your servant speak a word in my Lord's ear, and let not your servant's anger burn against your servant, and let not your anger burn against your servant, for you are like Pharaoh himself. My Lord asks his servants, saying, have you a father or a brother? And we said, Lord, we have a father and an old man and an old man and a young brother, the child of his old age. His brother is dead, and he alone is left of his mother's children, and his father loves him. Then you said to your servants, Bring him to me. And and, and, and he says in verse 22, we say, Lord, the boy cannot leave his father. If he should leave his father, his father would die. Verse 23. You said to your servants, Unless your youngest brother comes down with you, you shall not see my face again. Verse 24. We went back to your servant, my father. We told him the words. And when our father said, Go again, buy food, we said, We cannot go down. If our youngest brother goes with us, then we will go down, for we cannot see the man's face unless our youngest brother is with us. Verse 27, then your servant, my father, said to us, you know that my life bore me two sons. One left me, and I said, surely he has been torn to pieces, and I have never seen him. If you take this one also from me, and harm happens to him, you will bring my gray hairs and evil to Sheol. Now therefore, as soon as I come to your servant, my father, and the boy is with us, then as his life is bound up in the boy's life, as, he, as soon as he sees that the boy is not with us, he will die. You see Judah begging for Benjamin's life? Judah is begging not to leave Benjamin there. Judah is begging to bring Benjamin back. And Joseph has been testing them. Now, this is the second time that they passed the test. The first time, they could have left Simeon in prison. They could have told a lie to their dad or anything else they wanted to their dad. They didn't have to take a chance and come back, but they did. Their hearts have changed. Now, Benjamin is in custody. They could have left Benjamin. They would have been okay. They had plenty of money. Joseph gave them plenty of money. I think that that was intentional. It was by design. They had plenty of supplies. They had um, plenty of food. But now, Joe, now Judah is standing, risking his own life, pleading for Benjamin's life. They could have moved on. They could have forgotten Benjamin. But instead, they're begging for Benjamin's life. And then verse 33, Judah says to this Egyptian ruler, they did not know as his brother, now therefore, please, speaking to himself, let your servant remain instead of the boy as a servant to my Lord, and let the boy go back to his brothers, for how can I go back to my father if the boy is not with them, if the boy is not with me? I fear to see the evil that would find my father. 
Judah is now willing to risk his entire freedom, his entire life, if need be, for his younger brother Benjamin's freedom to be reunited with his dad. Joseph sees that there was good in his offender. Joseph sees that there was repentance. There was a change of heart. They were not the same that they were. They were so overwhelmed with remorse, with grief, with fear that they were through living in that manner and they weren't going to conduct themselves like that, which meant that Joseph was now able to go beyond forgiveness and now Joseph was able to enter into the realm of reconciliation with his brothers. So let me close out with these five points about the heart of forgiveness. These are not so much action steps as they are characteristics about the heart of forgiveness. And my prayer is that we would then have the boldness, have the audacity to live surrendered to Christ so that his heart of forgiveness can flow through us. The first characteristic of the heart of forgiveness, the heart of forgiveness believes that people can change. The heart of forgiveness believes even that our worst of offenders can change. Chapter 45, verse 1. Then Joseph could not control himself before all those who stood behind him. And now he doesn't hide his tears from his brothers. And I mean like a dam burst. His tears are flowing and he begins wailing in front of his brothers. Because now he's going to be able to reconcile with them. They've changed. He loves them. And he's not going to hide this love from them. As I mentioned earlier, we all have offenders. We all have people who've hurt us. We've all had people who've betrayed us. We've all had people who've let us down. And unless they've repented, then since that point, they have been living in fear, in guilt, in turmoil, in distress. And they can change through the power of the Holy Spirit. The heart of forgiveness is not that our offenders get a lightning bolt or something evil happens to them or something tragic happens to them so that they hurt as much as they've hurt us. That's not the heart of Christ. That's not the heart of forgiveness. The heart of forgiveness is that they change. The heart of forgiveness is that Christ floods their heart and fills their heart with the longing for Him, with the close relationship with them, so that God's blessings can rest upon them. That's the heart of forgiveness. The heart of forgiveness believes people can change. And if we have this heart of forgiveness, we're going to pray that the offenders in our life have a vibrant, beautiful relationship with Jesus Christ so that Christ can bless them and live through them. I have a good friend whose wife was hit by a drunk driver and killed. And, and I walked with that friend through the, through the funeral process, the grief, and even through the process of praying for that irresponsible young man who took the life of his wife. All the way up to the meeting that this husband had, this widower had, 
with this young man in prison. And his heart was to see this young man confess Jesus Christ as his Lord and Savior. See, this is the heart of forgiveness. The heart of forgiveness believes that through the power of the Holy Spirit, people can change. A friend of ours who's shared his testimony here a couple of times, Terry Caffey. He's been featured on, on several uh, nationwide news outlets. His wife, his little boys, his kids were brutally murdered. His kids and wife decapitated. He, he himself was shot several times. His house burned down. They lived in a rural country area. And his perpetrators left thinking that they were all slaughtered. And he crawled to his neighbor's house. God spared his life. And then he was even more traumatized to find out that it was his daughter and her boyfriend and their friends that did the murdering. And Terry comes here and talks to us about forgiveness, how he's forgiven those young men. Yes, it was a process, but he forgave them from the heart that they could change if they accepted Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. And he says that his best friend in the entire world now is his daughter, and he loves her, and they have a vibrant relationship, and he's he's a proud father when he talks about the Bible studies that she's leading in prison. And how Christ has changed her life. This is the heart of forgiveness. This is the heart of the gospel. People can change. And the heart of forgiveness longs for this transformation. Second, the heart of forgiveness not only believes that people can change, the heart of forgiveness protects our offenders. Let's go back to our text, chapter 45, verse 2. He wept, he broke down in front of his brothers. They don't know this is the brother. They don't know what's going on. And he says, still speaking in Egyptian, make everyone go out from me. He sends everybody out of the room. So no one stayed with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers. And he wept aloud so that the Egyptians heard it and the household of Pharaoh heard it. Why did he send everybody out? I believe he sent everybody out to protect his brothers. He's about to reveal who he is to them. And they're about to talk about family business. They're about to talk about what they did. And he knew that his heart was for reconciliation. His heart was to bring the family into Egypt because that was God's plan for this family to multiply into a nation. And he knew how favored he was in Egypt. He knew he was not only the servant to Pharaoh, he was like a father to Pharaoh, the most powerful man in the world. And he didn't want his brothers to be known for the one who did this horrible thing against their ruler, their beloved leader. So he sent them all out. I can always tell whose heart is Christ-like 
by whether or not they carry the offense. And they say, let me tell you what they did to me. Let me tell you what they did to me. And air it as publicly and as often as possible or the one who carries a testimony. Let me tell you what God did for me. Let me tell you how God blessed me. Let me tell you how God favored me. Let me tell you how God had never left me. Let me tell you how God is for me. In relation to our offenses, do you carry an offense or do you carry a testimony? Do you believe that your offender can change? And do you seek to protect your offender? Or do you seek to harm your offender as your offender has harmed you and to expose them at every opportunity possible? Or to protect them because this is your business, not the world's business? So we go to them. Matthew chapter 18 is our principle here. If your brother offends you, go to him. Not if your brother offends you, go to your best friend. If your brother offends you, type as fast as you can on some social media post and tell the world about it. If your brother offends you, tell everybody you can every chance you get. No, 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 no. The Bible says nothing about that. If your brother offends you, go to them. Talk to them about it. And this is what Joseph did. This was family business. This was their business. So he sent out everybody else, and he talked to his brothers about this. Third characteristic of the heart of forgiveness. First, the heart of forgiveness believes people can change. Secondly, the heart of forgiveness protects the offender. Thirdly, the heart of forgiveness pursues their offender. We continue to read in verse 3 and 4. And Joseph said to his brothers, here's the big reveal. My brothers, I am Joseph. His first question, is my father still alive? And what do his brothers do? They didn't do anything. They were terrified. They were in dismay. They were staring down. They're not even making eye contact. Verse 4, Joseph said to his brothers, come near to me, please. And they came near. And he said, I am your brother, Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. They're still thinking that he's going to have them executed, but that's just not in his heart. He has the heart of forgiveness. He's been testing them to see if they've changed. They've changed. Now his heart is for reconciliation. And he said, I'm your brother. And so he's pursuing this relationship with them. And now, the next characteristic of forgiveness. And I believe that this characteristic of forgiveness gives strength to the others. This characteristic of forgiveness enables the others. In other words, we cannot have a heart that roots for our offenders change. We cannot have a heart that protects our offender. We cannot have a heart that pursues relation with our offender if we do not have this Conviction. Forgiveness. The heart of forgiveness rests in God's providence. The heart of forgiveness rests in God's providence. We go on to read in verse 5. And he tells them quickly don't be afraid. Don't be distressed. Don't watch this. Watch Joseph's heart. Don't be angry with yourselves. He tells them, don't be distressed 
and don't be angry with yourselves. Wow. Because you sold me here. He's already seen the quality of their life for the last 17 years. They're living with guilt and fear and distress and inner turmoil and relational conflict. We saw in Genesis chapter 38 the quality of Judah's spiritual life or lack thereof. And now he's telling them, I've entered into a new chapter, and I want to bring you into this new chapter with me. And he tells them, do not be distressed, don't be angry with yourselves, because you sold me here. And watch this. Watch how many times we see a heart at rest in God's providential care over him. God's providential watch care. God's sovereign hand. What is the providence of God? What is God's sovereign hand? God's providence and sovereignty is his hand in the glove of life orchestrating everything according to his will for watch this god sent me here circle those words god sent god sent me here he said you didn't send me here god sent me here before you to preserve my life for the famine has been in the land these two years and there are yet five years in which there will be neither plowing nor plowing nor harvest verse seven and god sent me before you, to preserve for you a remnant on earth. He did this not only for me, he did this for you and to keep you alive for so many survivors. Verse 8, so it was not you who sent me here, and here it is again, but God sent me here. He has made me a father to Pharaoh and Lord of all of his house and ruler over all the land of Egypt. He said, this is God's doing. God did this. You didn't do this. God allowed it. God orchestrated all of it. I know that it was evil. And Satan enticed you. And you did it. But God used it. And here I am today. And I wouldn't be here otherwise. So I just want to say thank you. And don't beat yourself up. Don't cause yourself distress. Don't be angry at yourself because God used it. And I wouldn't be where I am today without it. So it is with our offenders. God obviously allowed it, it was evil. Satan obviously incited it. Our offenders obviously did it, but God has obviously used it, and we wouldn't be here today without it, which is why Joseph not only had a heart that was free from bitterness, anger, resentment towards his offender, but he tried to protect them from beating their own selves up, and he said, don't be angry at yourself. Let's just look at God. And again, as we open, this is the key. It's where do we focus? Are we focused on our offenders or are we focused on God? The brothers hated him, God favored him. The brothers abandoned him, God was with him. The brothers cast him into prison, God raised him up. The brothers sold him, God saved him. And so it is with us. Oh, but how critical it is not to run off and throw ourselves a pity party. 
how critical it is that we don't carry the spirit of offense. You'll never believe what happened to me. You'll never believe what they did to me. It's critical that we praise Jesus all the way through, and we have a heart that carries a testimony, not an offense. You'll never believe what God did for me. Let me share with you what God did for me, and God will do it for you as well. The final characteristic of justice. I'm sorry, the final characteristic of forgiveness. Forgiveness entrusts justice to God. Forgiveness entrusts justice to God. So, chapter 45, verse 9, they weep, they hold each other. Joseph specifically holds Benjamin and Benjamin and Joseph weep upon each other, and then he tells them in verse 9, hurry up to my father, tell him everything, tell him I'm alive, tell him who, who I am, tell him where God has brought me, bring them back. Pharaoh hears about it, everybody rejoices, Pharaoh says, Joseph, I don't tell you to do much, but I'm giving you a command, I want you to get your family, bring them back, and we're going to give them the very best land in Egypt. Verse 27 the brothers finally get back. They tell brokenhearted Jacob. And then when they told him all the words of Joseph, which he had said to them, and when he saw the wagons that Joseph sent him, the spirit of their father Jacob was revived. And when he saw everything, he said, it's enough. Joseph is alive, and I'm going to go to him, and I'm going to see him before I die. The final characteristic of the heart of forgiveness is that the heart of forgiveness entrusts justice to God. Let's go to chapter 50, verses 19 and 21. Some years pass. Jacob sees his son. Benjamin, Jacob sees his son. Joseph, Jacob meets Joseph's son, his grandkids. He gets to bless his grandkids. Then Jacob passes away, and then the brothers are scared. Has Joseph just been nice to us? Has Joseph been favorable to us for the sake of our father to spare him grief? Now is he going to make us slaves? Now is he going to kill us? And Joseph hears that his brothers are terrified, so he brings them in. Here's Joseph once again before his 11 brothers. And he says in verse 19, don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? And this is the final characteristic of justice. Justice and trust, of, of, this is the final characteristic of forgiveness. Forgiveness and trust justice to God. See, the root of bitterness is that we think that justice is our responsibility. And even if we're not in the place of Joseph to be able to imprison our offenders or to be able to execute our offenders or to be able to maybe just cause them to lose their jobs or suffer a little bit on our behalf, even if we're not in that place, bitterness, at the root of bitterness, is assuming the responsibility of justice in our heart and we throw daggers or distribute sentences to them in our heart and mind. 
and that will rob our joy, it will rob our peace, it will rob our prayer life, it will rob us of God's calling upon our life, it will rob us of intimacy and relationships. Joseph didn't carry this sense of justice. He knew who justice belonged to, and it was not him, it was God. So he knew his brothers were scared, and he brought them, and he spoke very tenderly to them, and he said, don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? Justice isn't mine. Verse 20. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. And he tells them again in verse 21, so do not fear. Watch this. I will provide for you and your little ones. And he comforted them and he spoke kindly to them. Wow. That's the heart of forgiveness. The heart of forgiveness believes that our offenders can change. The heart of forgiveness protects the name of our offenders. The heart of forgiveness pursues our offenders. And the heart of forgiveness rests in God's providence. And the heart of forgiveness entrusts justice to God. And as I said, this is nothing that we can do. But the Holy Spirit within us can do this. And all we have to do is surrender our heart. And Jesus said, if you who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more so will the Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? So if you're carrying a wound, I would like to invite you in our response time to say, oh, Father, let the Spirit of Christ flood my soul and give me this heart of forgiveness. Would you stand with me, please? With your heads bowed. I wonder how many of you, like me, would say, you know what, this story of Joseph was vulnerable. It really caused me to Remember some offenses in my life, some wounds in my heart. Would you just raise your hand up? I'd like to pray for you. Yeah, me too. I don't have three action steps to be able to forgive like this because you can't, I can't. It requires the heart of Christ to invade our soul, and that's exactly what Jesus Christ is willing to do this morning. So I I just want to invite you to come to the altar and pray. Oh God, flood my heart with the spirit of Christ so that I have this heart of forgiveness. Give me this heart of forgiveness so that I will be fully free and fully blessed just like you designed, just like you intended. Father, you saw the hands, you know the wounds, you see the stories, you are sovereign over them all. Be glorified as the heart of forgiveness floods every heart. And we leave here with peace, joy, and freedom. And your favor rests upon us. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. The altars are open, and I pray that none of us leave here the same person. Let's all leave totally transformed.